If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli... Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage, and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men, and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, 
He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard that the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use this word to enlighten our minds, to renew our wills, to fire our emotions with a love for the Savior. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. When I was younger, so much younger that I was younger even than many of my children, before the days of computer-generated graphics, sounds, and sights in movies, there was the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was one of my favorite films. It had everything. It had action. It had comedy. It had intrigue. But... This is not a movie review. This is a sermon. And so the one thing I want you to connect with here is do you remember the basic outline and plot of the Raiders of the Lost Ark? How the basic plot is how our hero, Indiana Jones, and others around him were working to keep the Ark of the Covenant out of the hands of the bad guys. And the bad guys were the worst bad guys you could ever imagine. Because when you dream up a bad guy, who's a worse bad guy than a Nazi? And of course the plot was, if the Ark fell into the hands of the Nazis, they would be able to take over all of the world in conquest. Now stop for a moment and think about that. That the Nazis, who were atheists, and who were at the very time that the film was taking place, persecuting and murdering Christians and Jews and others, could somehow get God to be on their side to sweep over the world. It sounds foolish, doesn't it? But that's not just a modern view of the Ark of the Covenant. It's actually the exact same view that the Israelites had in 1100 B.C. or thereabouts as they're fighting the Philistines. They're looking at the ark not as a sign of the Lord God Almighty, but rather as some kind of magic talisman that they could use to their advantage to gain their will. Well, this morning we will see from 1 Samuel 4 that God does not take kindly to us trying to manipulate Him into doing things for us. God does not take kindly to being a powerful box. What we do see here this morning 
First and foremost is that man proposes. The men have a plan that they have put together. Israel knows exactly what they need in order to achieve victory. But they haven't counted on the second thing, which is that God disposes. That God himself is the one who is sovereign. That it is his will that will come about. That God is not beholden to his creatures. And then finally, we will see God's judgment and grace side by side in the outcome of the battle and the loss of the ark. Man proposes, God disposes, and God's judgment and grace. Let's begin then by looking at how man proposes a plan. As we begin chapter 4, this is the broadening of the scope of our story. Up until this point, we've been dealing with individuals, Hannah, Samuel, Eli, others. Now we are about to look at the nation of Israel. And this is important because there are always two ways in which God relates to his people. He relates to his people individually, but also corporately. And this makes sense because each of the individuals relate to each other. There is a whole to be considered. And verse 1 is the bridge for this transition. The word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now oftentimes we view this as just Samuel executing the office of a prophet. But I think there's something else we need to have in the back of our mind to understand what's going on in chapter 4 and how lost the Israelites are. I think... Verse 1 is there specifically to let us know that Samuel is bringing the word he has gotten in chapter 3 to all of Israel. And you remember what that word was. That word was that God was not pleased with the sin of his priests. That God was going to bring judgment upon Hophni and Phinehas and upon Eli and his entire house. So Eli and his family are going to be judged by God. And Samuel is letting Israel know. Next, we are introduced to the Philistines. Now, the Philistines in 1 Samuel and in the book of Judges are very likely not the same people that we meet under the name of Philistines in the book of Genesis. These are a seafaring people that have come and settled in on the western coast of Uh, the promised land of Israel. They've come from Asia Minor, from Greece, the Greek islands, from what is modern-day Turkey, and they have settled and mainly settled in five cities. They have five princes or chieftains, and they are an aggressive people. They first appear in the scriptures in the time of Deborah. And then during the judgeship, of Samson, we read that they actually controlled Israel, that they had enslaved Israel. The Philistines bring this up later in chapter 4. And now what we see is that they are regrouping and they are ready to make another push against Israel in verse 2. Now, from the book of Judges especially, we have to understand that the struggle with the Philistines that Israel had was a sign of their relationship with God. Now, what do I mean by that? You all know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer, don't you? 
A thermostat is that item that hangs on your wall, and when you want it to be colder, you turn it and make it colder. And when you want it to be hotter, you turn it and make it hotter. Whereas a thermometer just tells you what the temperature is. So the Philistines are like Israel's thermometer. The relationship that Israel has with God is reflected in their conflict with the Philistines. When Israel experienced defeat against the Philistines, it was because there was a sign of God's disfavor with them because of their rebellion and sin. And this is, after all, the story of the Judges. If you want the book of Judges summed up in 30 seconds, it goes like this. Israel rebels, forgets God and his law. God sends enemies against them. They are enslaved. They cry out to God. He sends a deliverer. They are delivered. Then repeat. So Israel should be very aware of this. This should not be new to them as they meet the Philistines. So what we need to look at here is the bigger picture. Now, there is nothing in the narrative that suggests any kind of difference militarily. We don't know what kinds of weapons the Philistines used. We don't know what kinds of tactics they used. There's nothing really separating the Philistines and the Israelites. As a matter of fact, in this very brief account, they sound basically the same. Israel encamps at Ebenezer. The Philistines camp at Aphek. They both stretch out their lines. There's a fight, and the Israelites lose. The text is very short, very plain in verse 2. But the defeat is very decisive. We're told in verse 2 that about 4,000 men were killed on the field of battle. Now, one word of caution here. We don't know whether this was exactly 4,000 men. And that's not because the Bible isn't true. It's because in Hebrew, the word for thousand also meant at this day a military unit, a company of men that was less than a thousand. And so it could be that four companies of men were destroyed, a lesser number. This is likely not because the defeat wasn't decisive, but because less people were involved in ancient warfare than in modern warfare. They didn't conscript everyone into the military. But either way, we have a defeat that is decisive and that Israel understands about this. Because in verse 3, they come together and the elders ask the question, Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? In verse 3. Now, at first glance, this might seem like an odd question, wouldn't it? Isn't God supposed to be against the Philistines? Let me get this straight. The Philistines are the bad guys, right? They're the pagans. They don't know God. They don't love God. Why would God defeat Israel against such a wicked people? Why would God want evil to triumph But don't miss this important question that comes from the elders. Because they could have asked other questions. They could have said, why are the Philistines stronger than us? They could have said, what other tactics could we have used to win this battle? They could have even said, what bad luck did we have that we lost this battle? But instead, 
they see this defeat in light of their relationship with God. And this is because experience had told them that success or failure in battle was a sign of God's favor. We see this very clearly in two incidents that we had been looking at Sunday nights in the book of Joshua. The battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai. At the battle of Jericho, Jericho was surrounded by huge walls and it seemed that there would be no way possible that the Israelites could win. And God told them merely by marching around the city that he would knock down the walls and that he would bring the victory to them. And they were obedient and they won. And then shortly thereafter, there's another town called Ai. It's so small of a town that Joshua tells his generals, look, let's not bother to wake the whole army up. We don't need an army to take the city. Just send a few guys out and take care of it. And they're defeated. Was it because Ai was more powerful than Jericho? No, we know it is because there was sin in the camp of Israel, that they had denied God's law, that they had rebelled against God in the person of Achan. The warfare that Israel fights is often a sign of what is going on in their hearts. And the language here actually highlights it. What would we expect to read? The Philistines defeated the Israelites, right? But that's actually not what the text says. What the text says is, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines. God is responsible for Israel, Israel's loss. And so this defeat was enough to get their attention. They think of this question. They come up with the right question. But there is a significant problem. The elders did ask the right question, and they were the right ones to ask it. They're the spiritual leaders of Israel. They'd had experience with other such events. And what they should have done was they should have connected what is going on with the defeat. But they didn't. They didn't go to the Lord. They didn't, as we see over and over again in the book of Judges, they didn't cry out to the Lord. They didn't go to Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, and say, Samuel, help us. What's going on here? As a matter of fact, they don't really give any consideration. Now think about this in the context that you know full well. Think about the last time you made a major decision. You decided to buy a house, or to buy a car, or to ask someone to marry you, or decide to have children, or which school you will go to. My guess is you thought a bit about it. You might have even gotten out a piece of paper and wrote down pros and cons. You gave it some effort. You talked to people. You tried to find the right answer. But what happens here? It's as if the elders don't even stop to take a breath. Look at the text. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant here. We wonder why God has defeated us. Okay, Bring the ark out. That's the solution. I'm sure of it. Bring the ark out. They don't even pause to think. They should have connected the behavior 
But think about what happens. They send to Shiloh, and the ark comes. And in verse 4, And the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are with the ark. Who's carrying the ark? It's the sons of Eli. The Israelites should have connected the fact that the reason they lost the battle is because they had been mocking God. They had been foul in the worship of God. The priests had been sinning publicly and no one would do anything about it. Israel is a mess. And they doubled down on the mess. They say the way to fix this is, you know those those wicked guys, you know, Samuel had this prophecy about them. They're going to be killed. You know, the whole family's going to be cut off. Let's have them bring the ark out. Now, when you put it that way, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Because you see, that's not what they're thinking about. They weren't thinking. They should have let that question hang a little bit longer. They should have lingered on it a bit more. If they had, they might have even remembered and gotten the answer because Judges 13 verse 1 gives us and them the answer in their past. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Do you wonder why you lost to the Philistines? Maybe it's the exact same reason you lost last time to the Philistines. Because you were doing wicked. Because you were disobeying God. You see, the Israelites here believe in God. But they believe in God as they make Him to be. They understand and they know that God is active in the battle. And the problem is, is that God is active on the wrong side. And so they need him to be active on the right side. They try to find a quick solution, and their solution is, chop, chop, bring the ark. Now, what was the ark? The ark was a gold-covered, portable, wooden box. It was not much to look at. It was three and three-quarters feet long, and two and a quarters feet wide and high. And it almost always sat behind the veil in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. On top of it, it had two cherubim, which are angels with wings covering their eyes because they stood before the holiness of God. That top with the angels was called the mercy seat as a designation that God is a God of mercy and grace. And the ark itself contained the Ten Commandments. Now, not just a copy of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. The tablets written by the finger of God. And so the ark was the embodiment of God's law, of God's presence, and of God's mercy. But now you know what they've made the ark? It's a piece of tactical machinery. You see, the Israelites may have remembered that when they crossed the Jordan, the ark went out first and the Jordan parted. They may have remembered that when the walls fell down at Jericho, that the ark was taken around the city seven times and the walls fell. 
But what they forgot was the ark didn't part the Jordan. God parted the Jordan. The ark didn't bring the walls down. God brought the walls down. And so what they believe here is the very presence of the ark in their camp will force God to show up for them. The ark becomes a kind of a divine power box. Lost are thoughts about what caused their defeat. Lost is their relationship with God. Lost is what it means to serve God. What we have here instead is what one commentator says. We have rabbit's foot theology. It's a good luck charm. It's something to help them get their way. And so Israel is very confident in their decision. We see in verse 5 that as soon as the ark comes in, they shout such a great shout that the Philistines hear it a mile away. Now think about the context here. They had just been defeated. They were just downcast. They were the same army they were before except less because they'd lost men in battle. But now because the ark is here, all of a sudden they have the greatest of confidence. What a morale booster. Because the ark's here, we're going to win. Now, what's interesting is the reaction of the Philistines who hear this cry a mile away. Do you see what we're told in verses 7 through 9? They first ask, what is causing all this hullabaloo? And then when they find out that the ark has come into the Israelites' camp, what do they say? They say, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. God has come into the camp and now he's going to fight for them. You see, the Philistines' view of God is that God isn't everywhere at once and that you need to trick God to get him to where you are so that he will fight for you. That's the way they looked at their gods. And they even say, you know, this is what happened in Egypt when all of the plagues came down on the Egyptians. Now, the Philistines aren't the sharpest tax in the box because they think the plagues come in the wilderness, not in Egypt. But you understand the principle of they're trying to apply here is that if you want to win, you get your God to be on your side in your place and he's bigger than their God and that's how you win. Notice their assumption that God is something to be brought out and controlled. But they also believe that God is limited. Because you see their last reaction in verse 9 is, we need to be courageous. We need to play the man. We need to be men and fight. And if we are extra courageous, we can beat God. Now, when you say it that way, it sounds foolish. But if God, if by God you mean a deity that sits in a portable box and is carried around from place to place and isn't every place at once and comes at the whim of his people, then yes, that kind of a God can be defeated. You see, they have the same kind of view about God, actually, that Israel does here. That should be shocking to us. And then it happens. You see, the Israelites are sure that the ark will bring them victory. Now, the first reason is they believe that the ark is a source of power that they can tap into. 
that it is a place of power to obtain. Now, our day is not immune to this kind of thinking. Every time you hear someone tell you to name it and claim it, that's arc thinking. It's as if somehow if I say the magic words and do the right thing, that I can tap into the power of God to get great health or all kinds of money or a new car or fame and a reputation. You see, God isn't God there. God's just a really advanced tool. He's something to get me what I want when I call him. But the second reason is, it's not just that they think the ark is a source of power. The second reason is, they think they have God in a corner. They're putting pressure on God. Now, it's not spelled out, but look at the way they're thinking. We'll bring the ark here. The ark will go out into battle against the Philistines. God has to win. Because what happens if we don't win? Who looks bad? Well, we look bad, but you know who looks really bad? God. He couldn't make it happen. He's too weak to beat the Philistines. He's not showing he's the sovereign God of the universe. We've got God in the corner. He's got to win for us or he looks bad. What could be better than that? Do you see their way of thinking? It's not unlike the way most of us think all of the time. We try to leverage people. We try to get what we want by bringing on board someone or something that's powerful that wants the same thing. And we ride on the coattails. That's what they're trying to do with God. But God will have none of it. The text here is actually very plain. Look at verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. There's not a lot of emotion in that account. There's not a lot of suspense in that account, account is there? Their plan flops. Now, this should not surprise us because God will not be treated as some kind of secret weapon to be used by us. Again, remember, who is carrying the ark? Israel had separated their relationship and the holy requirements of God's law from the promises of God. They'd made them completely distinct as if somehow They didn't need a relationship with God. They didn't need to acknowledge who he was. They didn't need to obey him. And God was still obligated to give them what they wanted. They so presumed on God's favor that they began actually to mock him. Now, we can do this today. We can do this today when we think that God has to defend the United States of America. Because after all, we're God's Christian people. We're a Christian nation. If it weren't for us, there'd be no missions. If it weren't for us, there'd be no churches. If it weren't for us, what would God be doing in the world? 
And so, as long as we point out how much worse everybody else out there is, somehow, even though we don't feel the need to repent, we don't feel the need to seek God, we don't feel the need to obey God, somehow we can make God show up for us. Because we want Him to. But the truth is, God cares more for His honor than we do. And so there is a God-honoring result that comes. Israel was counting on God to be concerned about His honor. That was the pressure they were putting on God to show up. It was not faith in God, but it was rather a superstition. But God will have Israel see who He really is. Rather than be mocked, God defeats Israel. And it's very interesting. Do you see in verse 10, what happens to Israel is that there is a great slaughter. Now you can't tell because of the difference in translation. But the same Hebrew word is behind another word in verse 8. It's when the Philistines talk about the plagues that God brought on Egypt. It's the same word. So what we really have happening here is that what God did to Egypt, He's doing to Israel now. And it's basically for the same reason. Because they refuse to acknowledge Him as God. They refuse to obey Him. They refuse to worship Him. They wanted God to be a tool for themselves. And one thing we need to learn is that God will suffer shame rather than have you carry on a false relationship with Him. A victory for Israel would not have changed anything, would it? If anything, it might have honored Hophni and Phinehas in their sin. God will not be manipulated for our ends. And for that reason, we cannot depend on the promises of God without seeing the demands of His covenant. And those demands are the terms of our relationship with God. They tell us who God is. And so what God does is His will, not ours. Think about what the result is. Israel is defeated. But that's not actually the most significant thing. The most significant result is that we see that God's word is true. The word that he had pronounced against the house of Eli, the word that he had pronounced of judgment against the sons of Eli, that comes true before our very eyes. And vain and false religion is swept away. This is the last day that Shiloh will be a focus of worship in Israel. Never again. When the ark is recovered, it will go for decades to an obscure location. And then eventually it will end up at Jerusalem. Never again will it come to Shiloh. God is sweeping aside all of the false worship, all of the sin that is found in Shiloh. And the way is cleared now. For Samuel, and for one who would come and be king, a king after God's own heart. 
And now, finally, Israel understands and realizes that they cannot control God and they cannot ignore God. Because God will allow you to be disappointed, to wake you up to who He is. God is not after your peace and your prosperity. God is not concerned with His short-term reputation. The cross of Jesus Christ is proof of this, isn't it? Jesus was mocked. He was spit upon. He was beaten. He seemed defeated. Satan was rejoicing. But God had a bigger plan, didn't he? You see, God is not concerned with short term how he looks. God focuses upon his will and his plan and he will execute it. And his plan is to have his people be in relationship with him, to know him and to love him. Now we need to learn this lesson. Not because you're going to go home and build an ark. Wouldn't advise it. But let me ask you this question. Why do you pray? Do you pray because you think it makes God answer? Why do you spend time in God's word? Do you have daily devotions because you think I have to do this so God will look out for me and my interests? You see, we could fall in the same way of thinking. Del Ralph Davis puts it wonderfully. Whenever the church stops confessing, thou art worthy, and begins chanting, thou art useful. Well, then you know the ark of God has been captured again. You see, God is not useful. He is worthy. We are never saved by a thing. We are only saved by God. And the end of this chapter then allows us to see the results. To see the results of God's judgment and His grace. This is where chapters 1 and 3, 1 through 3 and 4 come together. We can almost picture the Benjamite runner coming to Eli. As a matter of fact, this is a sign of the future. For who will the next king be but someone from Benjamin? There's actually a tradition that this runner who came to Eli was Saul, sort of connecting the dots. Now, we can't prove that, but there is a foreshadowing of what is to come. And then we see old Eli in verse 13. Eli is sitting by the seat, watching. Now, think about how that encapsulates Eli's life. Because we find out from this text that Eli can't see a thing. So why is he watching? He's going through the motions. He can't see anything. And he is anxious. In verse 13, we hear that his heart trembled for the ark of God. Now, I have to orient you about this verse. You see, we know too much. We know that the ark was taken. 
We know that the Israelites are defeated. But you have to understand that before this event, for more than 300 years, the Ark of the Covenant had never been touched by an enemy. It had never been close to being captured. It was a sign of Israel's victory and power. That's why they brought it to the battle. So it's actually kind of foolish for Eli to be sitting, fretting, I wonder what happens to the Ark. I wonder what happens to the Ark. It's better if we look at this and we see that his heart was afraid, that is, it trembled, not for the sake of the ark, but because of the ark. Because after all, he had heard the prophecy, didn't he? Now, I don't know about you, but if someone had prophesied that both my sons would die on the same day, and then I get a report that they're carrying the ark to the front lines, I'm afraid. Something's about to drop here. I'm not afraid for the ark. I'm afraid because I know God is a God of his word, and I know God is a God of judgment, and I know that my sons deserve the judgment that's coming. You see, Eli knew that God kept his word. He should have been optimistic like the camp. He should have been cheering and yelling trying to jump up out of his chair, even though he couldn't. That's what he should have been doing. But then the news comes from the runner. And as the news broke, it just got worse and worse. Israel has been defeated. They fled. By the way, your sons are dead. By the way, the ark is gone. And that was the news that broke Eli. Because he knew that the judgment of God was upon not just his sons, but his family. And it is easy to mishear what God is doing. It's easy to get caught up in the battle, to get caught up in the story of the ark, to get caught up in the Philistines. But the big picture here is that God keeps his word. And that he may be mocked for a little while in Philistia but he will no longer be despised in Shiloh. There is no way to avoid God's judgment that he pronounces in his word. He is not a God to be bargained with. He is not a God to be pressured. God means what he says. So what that means for you this morning, beloved, is that when the Lord tells you that unless you repent, you will perish, God means it. When God says, unless you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are lost. Don't think you can avoid his word. Don't say, but God, all these other people were so much worse. But God, I got up at 8 o'clock every morning and did my devotionals. You owe it to me. God keeps his word and he's given us his word And his word points us to the only hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. And this is where we see God's grace in the midst of this tragedy. The end of the story turns to Phinehas' wife. She is pregnant and about to give birth. And as she hears this news, it's too much for her and she goes into labor. But there is more than that. She actually gives up on life. And those who are around her try to cheer her up. They say, it's a son. 
That should be the highlight of your life. You've got a boy. But she'll have none of it. So much so that she actually names the son Ichabod. Now, for those of you who are only familiar with Ichabod through Mr. Crane, there is a controversy about what Ichabod means. Some say it means no glory. Some say it means where is the glory? Some say it means the glory is gone into exile, but this is not something we need to debate about because it basically, all of it means the same thing. That the glory of God has departed from Israel. You see, she understood what was going on and that it was more than a battle that was lost. She knew that Israel did not want a relationship actively with the Lord and that the Lord was going to let them see what that looked like. But the truth is, she was wrong. The glory of God did not depart with the ark. The ark was lost because the glory of God had departed from Israel. But the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is always more powerful than our sin. And that's why it actually triumphs over judgment. God was even now preparing His people for a new day. We might look in our Bibles and see that the first place that Ichabod appears is in the Garden of Eden, as the glory of God is gone. But what does God do? Even then, God had a reply to that cry of Ichabod, and that reply was Jesus Christ. Beloved, your sin is real. Your faithlessness to God is real. But God replies with His Son. The messenger of woe from 1 Samuel 4 is replaced with the messenger of good news. God does not just want to protect you. God does not just want to bless you. What God wants is you. And so he calls you today to come to him. Come to him through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.